0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Good morning. Well, I was looking through uh, this week, trying to find a wonderful introduction story. And so I was going through the news as uh, just Google. You can Google and then click the little news and you can find any news on any topic that you want. And so I was looking for hypocrisy or a little interesting story. And the story itself is that I found hundreds of articles in the title, Hypocrite, Hypocrisy. Apparently, everybody's a hypocrite. Every There's hypocrisy everywhere you look, and there's people shaking their heads. Of course there are. But what I noticed is everybody on the other side of the aisle is the hypocrite. Every news organization kind of has their own bent and their own little, you know, they're on their own sides, and uh, they they constantly point out that the guy on the other side of the aisle, that's the guy who's the hypocrite. There's no hypocrites on my side. The hypocrites are on that side. And uh, they kind of have this, you know, strange game going where if they can't figure out, you know, they can't catch you in a lie, they'll look back over the ages and try and find something that you have done in the past that doesn't meet up to what you're saying today. And so you kind of, you know, you, you kind of see the idea, you know, Joe Schmo who works for the, you know, North American uh, Brussels Sprout Association, and uh, he his job is to go and, you know, tout the glory of the Brussels Sprout. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't get through that. Um, <laughs> And so he goes off and he tells everybody about the wonderful things of Brussels sprouts. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, I got a video of Joe Schmo when he was nine and he said, and I quote, about the Brussels sprout and I quote, icky. And so, you know, hypocrite. Joe Schmo's a hypocrite. Now he's touting how wonderful Brussels sprouts are, but we got him at nine years old saying icky about the Brussels sprout. And so, you know, being a hypocrite is one of the worst things that you can call somebody. If somebody says you're a hypocrite, they mean that what you say, what you believe, does not match up with your actions. And so, bam, you're a hypocrite. And nobody wants to be a hypocrite, but, you know, quite frankly, we're all guilty of it a little bit because nobody lives up to their beliefs and their words 100%. Because why? Because we're not perfect. We are sinners. So we never live up perfectly. So somebody could, if we, they recorded our entire lives, somebody could find something that we say that is hypocritical because of what we do. And, but we are called as Christians to do the best we can at living up to that standard of what we believe. We want the gap to be the smallest as possible. And so we do not besmirch the gospel or make Jesus look bad. So we want to live up to it as best we can. And that's really going to be the topic of today is, does what we say match with what we do? And currently we're in the series uh, entitled, equipped to serve where we're studying through the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and also Titus, and those are called the pastoral epistles. They are letters written to Paul to young pastors, Timothy and young pastor Titus, Uh, and here at Whitefields, we like to cover the entire book. We want to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and currently we are in 1st Timothy chapter 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so today we're going to be starting in verse 17, where Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor, to give him instructions on how things should be done in the church, which is, as Pastor Nick was talking about in the previous weeks, which is the household of God, the pillar and buttresses of the truth, the household of God. Earlier in the chapter, he wrote about how the Christian community is family, and therefore we should treat each other like family. For example, older men, we should treat as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And this is how the church should relate to one another and support one another. And he uses the example of the most vulnerable people group, one of the most vulnerable people group in our society, the widows. And so to illustrate his idea, he talks about how how with the widows, we should be treating the widows with love and care, providing for them when necessary and honoring the widows. So this idea of honoring uh, individuals in the church brings Paul to our topic today, and he talks and he wants to talk about elders so we 're honoring widows, speaking of honoring let 's talk about our elders and how we honor our elders and so I know what you're thinking well i 'm not an elder, why do I need to pay attention? Wake me up, Martha, when he 's talking about something that has to do with me. This applies to everybody because this passage teaches us that we Well, what we do matters because it highlights the fact that all our lives are on display for everyone to see, whether we like it or not. And what we do carries significance, and we will have lasting impact on the witnesses, on others, and also our relationship with God. So let's look at our summary sentence this morning. Our actions matter because they affect our witness. And our relationship with God. And let's take a look at the first section, the first part there. Our actions matter because they affect our witness. So let's look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So here we find Paul talking about elders, the spiritual leaders of our church, those who go and are responsible before God for overseeing the church. And so who should be honored? Those elders who lead well. What they teach and believe line up with their actions. That is leading well. Acts 28 Paul tells the elders to shepherd the flocks of God. And Peter also repeats the same topic and the same idea in 1 Peter. Uh, He says, um, I'm sorry, uh, that's where we get the word pastor from. Shepherding uh, is, uh, I'm sorry, pastor is actually Latin for shepherding. And so that's where we get the idea of pastoring. So elders are called to shepherd or pastor the flock. And so, really, he's talking about here, he's talking about pastors. And the pastor has a rather prominent position in the church, and therefore his actions absolutely need to line up with what he's saying. Nothing will ruin a fa- pastor's ministry faster than saying something and then living something completely different. I mean, what would he even be a standing up here for? That would not be ruling or leading well, would it? So now notice, Paul is telling us that these elders or pastors who rule well should be considered, for, uh, considered worthy for double honor, especially if they preach or if they teach. So let's take a look. What does double honor mean? Um, what does he mean by honor, and why are we doubling it? So if you want to know what an author means in the Bible by something, well, you can just look at the context around that saying, and it just so happens that Paul previously in this chapter talked about honor. He was talking about honoring the widows. So what does he mean by honoring the widows? And we can kind of get an idea about what he means by honoring these uh, elders or these pastors. And uh, in the ancient Near East, it was kind of a, a standard for people who were no longer able to work to be taken care of by their family members. That was your retirement. You had a zillion kids, and so you would be able to retire because those kids would be the ones taking care of you. And so if a widow had no other family, then Paul says it was the church's job to take the, on that responsibility and take care of the widow. This was in the form of food. It was in the form of finances, of money, to, so, so she can live a life. And we can also take a look at the word itself in, uh, in Greek, time which means value or price or worth it's the worth of somebody you can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20 says for you were bought with a price price there is the same word you were bought with a value Christ paid a value for you because you have a value to him and it's the same way that the widow has a value This is unheard of actually in Paul's day because they always thought that the widow was just simply a drain on their resources. They did not bring anything in. And so therefore, why should we have to take care of them? And so Paul reminded us earlier in the chapter that no, 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 the widow has a value. The widow has a worth. And what Paul is saying here is then, how much more does the one who stands in the breach, protecting the flock from the enemy against false teachers, against heresy in the church, spending hours on his knees, praying for the church, seeking the Lord's direction for the church. How much more value does that man have to the church? And he says, well, that man has double honor. And yes, in today's language, Paul is talking about financial support for the pastor so here I find myself, a pastor, preaching about giving money to pastors. Now I know why Nick left me this passage to teach. <laughs> he had such a grin on his face when he told me, and he looked so relaxed when he boarded his plane to Europe. I don't know why, but suddenly I realize what the situation was. <laughs> but this happens when you teach the full counsel of God, and so therefore, we must preach through. And I will preach on. (laughs) Now, Paul Paul goes on to give support for uh, his statement here in uh, verse 18. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So if you have any doubt that Paul's talking about money, well, here's your confirmation. That's what he's talking about. He's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4 about letting the ox tread out uh, the grain and, and not being muzzled. That's it's not something we usually, you know, do here in Longmont. I mean, not many of you probably own oxen and uh, you don't allow it to tread on the grain. And so what happens is in this day and age, uh, they would have something called a threshing floor. And they would spread out all the grain on the threshing floor, and then the ox would come, and he would walk all over the grain for a long time, and he's separating out the actual grain from the straw. And you don't want to muzzle the ox, you want him to be able to feed as he's laboring for you. So you don't muzzle him, he just kind of eats some of the profit, so to speak, but that's okay, that's the humane thing to do, and so in the law, uh, God was reminding the Israelites of that very thing. And then he goes on and quotes Jesus in Luke uh, ten seven. the laborer deserves his wages. The idea of supporting pastors in their work is not simply mentioned in 1 Timothy. It's actually Paul mentions it over and over and over again throughout his writings. And let's just take a look at a couple. Uh, in Galatians, he says, let the one who is taught the word, share all good things with the one who teaches. And then again, he says in 1 Corinthians, if we have sown spiritual things among you, it is, is it too much to reap material things from you? Uh, if others share this rightful claim on you, do, uh, do not we even more? And then he says in 2 Corinthians, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them so that I could serve you in order to serve you. So over and over again, he talks about wages, wages. You're not paying these wages. Why not? So, you know, back in those days, apparently Paul had to twist arm, twist arms to be able to get people to support the ministry, to support those laboring for the Lord. And if they did, it wasn't very much. And unfortunately, Quite often, that's still true to today. I mean, it's kind of a, a running joke in the Christian circles on how much pastors make. There's a, th- uh, there's a saying in seminary that says, nobody becomes a pastor or goes into the ministry for the money. Why? Pastors don't get paid much. I don't know if you know that or not. And it's even such a, a kind of a, a humorous thing in Christian circles that, of how much the average pastor makes that this, this, uh, a very famous satire website uh, posted an article. They wrote an article. Congregation questions pastor's lavish lifestyle upon purchasing a '98 Corolla. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I love that. That article's hysterical. Um, yeah. So it's you know it's kind it's kind of a running joke uh, about pastors and how much they make. We don't make a lot, but that's okay. We're not in it for the money. You know, if you are in it for the money and you are getting rich being a pastor you're doing something that's not ethical. (laughs) So, but in all seriousness, according to MIT and Zipia, the average pastor in Colorado makes 27% less than the living wage. The living wage is what you need to make to live in Colorado. The average pastor makes 27% less than that. Now, what I don't want you to hear is that the pastors here at Whitefields need a wage increase. That's not what I'm saying. We're fine. What I, but what I want you to see is the discrepancy of how the Bible says pastors should be honored versus how the average church honors their pastors. One thing I'm fairly certain is when, when Paul says they should receive double honor, He's not saying they should receive less honor. But that's unfortunately how we in America honor our pastors. We honor them less than we would even the widows. But what's interesting is what Paul is doing here. Let's get off that topic. That was getting awkward. So let's, what Paul was, what interesting is what Paul is doing here is he's quoting the book of Luke and he's calling it scripture. Scripture. I hear this quite often is when people um, say, well, the apostles back then, when they're saying scripture, what they really mean is the Old Testament. But that's not true. When the apostles say scripture, they, they, they could mean the Old Testament, but they could also mean the New Testament. And so here we see Paul quoting the gospels and referring to it as scripture. As a matter of fact, Peter... In his uh, second letter, referring uh, to Paul, uh, Paul's writings as scriptures. And then also, both Peter and Paul both refer to their own writings as scripture. So when they were writing out the Bible, they were thinking, this is scripture. When people were receiving these letters, they were thinking, this is scripture, don't listen to anybody who tells you that the New Testament was officially put together in somewhere in the fourth century. That's not true. It's the furthest thing from the truth. These people knew they were writing scripture, and the people who were reading this knew this was scripture. In verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except for the evidence of two or three witnesses. Witnesses. Because the pastor is in a public position, it's inevitable that something is going to be brought up against them at some time in their lives. Some of these accusations are going to be true, hopefully not, but some of them may be true and some of them, you know, aren't going to be true. But in every single case, Satan wants to separate. He wants to make a separation between the congregation and the pastor because that will damage the church and it will uh, weaken the authority and diminish the teaching of the word of God. And so that's what Paul wants. Paul has set some ground rules for Timothy just in case this does happen because inevitably it will. And he says, do not accept any charges that isn't backed by at least one, hopefully, I'm sorry, at least two, hopefully three people. And this idea actually comes from the law. It comes from Deuteronomy. And it really uh, is, it permeates the culture. It permeated the Jewish culture and the uh, early Christian cultures as well, well. so much so that the first century historian Josephus writes about how it permeates the culture. You can actually read it as well in the early uh, Qumran writings, if you really want to dig into that. So these people really understood that charges must be evaluated. They must be. Uh, there must be evidence for this charge. People must be protected from er- erroneous and upsub- unsubstantiated uh, accusations. Paul really wants to hit the balance between believing every uh, gossipy rumor about a pastor and ignoring serious sin in a pastor's life. Both extremes are wrong. There has to be a middle ground. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. And so now Paul turns his attention to those elders or pastors who are not leading well. Those whose actions do not line up with the Christian beliefs. Those who are pursuing and persisting in sin. So verse 20 As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that uh, the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So you see kind of this image of a courtroom, and you see Timothy there, that's who he's talking to, you see Timothy standing in the courtroom before God the Father, before Jesus Christ, before all the angels, and he is the impartial judge ready to administer justice. And then you get this vision of the uh, elder or the pastor who has done wrong, who is persisting in sin. He is standing there before the whole congregation waiting for the discipline to be meted out. And the reason for that is because Paul wants everybody to see the gravity of that sin and not repeat the sin. But we cannot judge, or I'm sorry, prejudge, and we can't be partial. We must never treat anybody according to the status that they have in life, the, the job position that they have, but we also shouldn't treat them uh, different because they're our friends. The relationship that we have with them, we can't be partial. We should treat everybody just like they, when they stand before Christ on the final day, ready to be judged, everybody's equal. That's how we should be treating uh, somebody who has done something wrong in the church. Everybody is equal. Then in verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying out of hands, nor take part in sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And so this kind of takes a little shift here because apparently Paul is allowing for the contingency that whatever the elder or the pastor has done, he needs to be replaced now. And so we need to bring somebody, we need to raise somebody up to replace this elder or replace this pastor. And he's saying, you know, laying on hands, don't be hasty in laying on hands. Laying on hands was and still is a symbolic um, a symbolic gesture throughout the church. Really, it signifies the public recognition of authority and the commissioning of this individual for the work of the Lord. We still do this. We do this in this church sometimes. We lay hands on an individual, and uh, we're commissioning them for the work, of, uh, the work of the kingdom. And so Paul says, don't raise up leaders. Don't lay hands on them too hastily. If they're not ready, problems can emerge. And he talks about this earlier in the book in chapter three. He says, he must not be a recent convert or he may uh, become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation and the condemnation of the devil. And so you kind of, uh, you know, we re- when we're raising somebody up, we really want them to be spiritually, mentally, emotionally ready to lead people closer to the Lord. Because if you don't, you know, Bad things can happen. People can become puffed up. People can fall into sin. And if this should happen and we neglect to do our due diligence, we partake in their fall, in their sin, because we didn't do our due diligence. And this is what Paul tells Timothy when he says, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. If Timothy, out of negligence, you know, uh, brings somebody on board, as we would call it, or raises somebody up in the church and they're struggling with sin in their lives, well, Timothy is going to be partially responsible for that sin affecting the church. And if he leads somebody in leadership, in a leadership position who is continuing in sin, Timothy is going to be partially responsible for those sins that happen in the church and the way it affects the church. So he has a very responsible duty. So, you know, we all want to be used by God, but we need to be patient. We need to be patient in raising somebody up. And if you want to be raised up, you also need to have patience, knowing that if, you know, whoever is raised up in the church, it's God's decision, and God is going to raise us up in due time. Our spiritual gift and our calling will manifest itself over time. Our spiritual maturity will manifest itself over time. And when God is ready, then that person will be raised up. And then in verse 23, Paul says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Wait, what? Where did we go here? How did we just... Take a left turn at Albuquerque, and hope suddenly we're talking about wine and water, drinking it. Yeah, so it's almost like, you know, we have an advertisement for Merlot. It's in the middle of our, our passage. So, uh, but Paul has a logic to what he's saying here. In the ancient Near East, wine was a typical treatment for, for ailments. It was a typical treatment for stomach ailments and various disorders. You had a stomach ache, drink some wine. That was a normal thing back then. And so nowadays, we, you know, we say take a Tums or something. We don't normally turn to the, uh, the wine section. But in this day, they didn't have a lot. So yeah, they would turn to wine. But the, the key question is, why was Timothy not drinking wine. It says he was only drinking water and not wine. And so why was that? And people have a few theories. One theory is that maybe Timothy um, was practicing a life of uh, ascetic, an ascetic life where, you know, you kind of avoid any kind of indulgences for religious purposes. But this doesn't really make sense because, you know, being a, a disciple of Paul who's not that way, it doesn't make sense that one of his disciples would be that way. What makes more sense is that Paul, when he's talking about in the previous verse, telling Timothy to remain pure, it seems like this explanation stems from that statement of remaining pure. So most likely, Paul is abstaining from wine to remain pure. So it could be that there are households in his community or, or leaders in his community that are struggling with alcohol. And so Paul is, an, I'm sorry, Timothy, as an example, uh, made the choice to avoid wine as, as not to be a tempter to these individuals. So Paul is basically saying, uh, speaking of purity, I know that you're avoiding wine to remain pure, but if you need it for your stomach, take it. In other words, whether you drink wine or not has nothing to do with your purity. If you need it for your stomach, drink the wine, Timothy. All right, let's look at the second half of our sentence. Our actions matter because they affect our witness and relationship with God. So Paul summarizes what he's been talking about this whole time and really helps us to apply it to our lives with this last section here. Verse 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. He makes a contrast here between sin and good works. And and on each side of those, he makes another contrast between visible and hidden actions, right? So on the first one, On the side of sin, there are some sins that are obvious. Some sins are easy to see. And he makes this visual, this image of this kind of procession where the sinner's sin, he says, going before them to judgment. The final judgment as they stand before Christ. The sin is blatant, the sin is obvious, and it kind of forges a path uh, to this inevitable judgment. But trickier is the hidden sin, the sin that he says appears later, or literally it says follows after, because he's still talking about that procession. The sin follows after and will only come into light on the final judgment. But I, I make no mistake that that sin will make an appearance at the final judgment when you stand before Christ. You know, sometimes it's easy to see the struggles and sins that some people have, and and, in some other people, it's more difficult to see. We all have those areas in our lives that that God's dealing with, and sometimes those areas are, are quite evident for others to see. Visible sin is so much easier to deal with. I mean, it's right there. People can see the sin. They can help you, brothers and sisters helping each other, lay that sin before the Lord, allowing the Lord to work on that sin and heal that area of our lives. But it's so much more difficult with a secret sin. Secret sin is like a spiritual cancer. It's hidden, it grows, slowly metastasizing, allowing the enemy to grip you and sink his claws into you. And because it's secret, because it's hidden, there will not be any spiritual treatment for your cancer. It takes place, and it takes over, and eventually it will destroy your relationship with God because we cannot live in sin and have a healthy relationship with the Holy God. It's impossible. Never keep your sin secret. Confess it and let God heal your sin. Paul now now contrasts sin with good works, those actions that are done in the Spirit that are pleasing to the Lord. There are an outflowing of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us as we seek to please God and live in His will. It should be a lifestyle for us. Good works should be a lifestyle. That's what we do. What do we do? We do good works. Because of this, some good works are going to be easy to see. People are going to see them, but that's not why we do them. We do them because we love God and we want to please God. But some, inevitably, when we do good works, they're just nobody's ever going to see those good works. But that's OK because we don't do them for people to see. We do them for God. And you know who sees them? The Father who is in heaven, who is looking down upon us, sees those good works, and he is pleased. So just like the elders spoken of in this passage, our actions are important. They speak louder than words ever could, and if we say one thing and our actions do uh, or say something completely different, guess what, folks? People are going to look at our actions. They're not going to listen to our words. What we do affects our witness more than what we say, and so you must let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Allow others to see the light of the gospel in our lives that we may be a living arrow constantly pointing to Christ in everything that we do. But what's sad is that those who do not have Jesus are unable to do any good works. There is no way for a non-believer, somebody without Jesus, to please God in any way. Speaking of non-Christians, people without the Lord, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. Nobody seeks for God, nobody does good, not even one. By our actions, we have earned judgment from God and alienated ourselves from God. We have earned condemnation through our actions. But that gap that we have made can be bridged by the cross. If only through, uh, it is only through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that we are able to now have a relationship with God at all. It is through Jesus that we are now enabled to do those good works. It's through Jesus that we are no longer in condemnation because on the cross Jesus took the judgment of our sins upon himself. Rather, we've received, I'm sorry, rather than receiving condemnation, we've received grace, we've received redemption, we've received forgiveness, and we have received life. It's through Jesus that we now have the motivation and the power by the Holy Spirit to do those God-pleasing actions let You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.